Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. ask that you would give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility so that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead we may rise to the life immortal. Through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. We're not going to make very good time in uh, coordinating this with the weeks to come. But uh, we will do our best. I warned everybody in Sunday school, first of all, saying that I appreciated Devin taking Sunday school and uh, preaching unto us last week. But it's also a very dangerous thing because now I've been stored up for two weeks. And so I could go for a long time. Um, because I haven't had an outlet here for the uh, last couple of weeks. So anyway, I will do my best to uh, be mindful of the time here this morning, but just in case you have been warned. All right, let's look in Revelation chapter 1, verse number 12. We have been looking at the apocalypse of Jesus Christ to the seven churches and we are still in the introduction to our series. As a matter of fact, this morning in Sunday school, so I had uh, the scripture reading and a quote out of the book that we're dealing with in Sunday school called Life Together. Um, it's a very great, good book by a Lutheran pastor from back in the 1930s by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was killed by the Nazis. He was executed uh, by them. Uh, but he wrote a book called Life Together. His most famous book is probably The Cost of Discipleship, which is another excellent book. Uh, but uh, in this uh, book that we've been looking at, it talks about true Christian community, and that's something that needs to be renewed and restored in our day and time. So I read the quote out of the book, and then in my introduction, I got through the first sentence of my introduction in Sunday school. So um, that one sentence uh, that, that one sentence grew into, uh, I don't know, a half hour or something like that. And so we don't know what's going to happen here this morning, uh, but we have been looking at this topic concerning the apocalypse of Jesus Christ to the seven churches, and I might add the seven churches in Asia. And of course, there are aspects in which these 
things are true eternally and for all time and to the churches. But we begin reading in verse number 12. That's where I want to start again here this week. It says, John stating, after Jesus had said to him that he was the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, he says in verse 12, John says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So we began this series, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ to the seven churches and we introduced the book of Revelation by dealing with the meaning of of the terms used to name, label, and identify the book. Words like revelation and apocalypse, which are the same word, and uh, they're synonymous, and they're defined as discovery and disclosure. So we could say this is the disclosure, this is the revelation, this is the apocalypse, this is the defining of the risen Christ. This is the risen Christ. The book of Revelation is about the revelation of the risen Christ. So we have all the things in the Gospels concerning his birth, his life and ministry, his death, burial, resurrection. And then in the book of Acts, we have his ascension. And then the rest of the book of Acts goes on to the Acts of the Apostles. But what we have in this book is the revelation of the risen Christ. This is the one who is being revealed, who is sitting on the right hand of God. This is the revelation of the one to whom God has granted all power and all authority in heaven and on earth. Many people get so distracted with so many different things in the book of Revelation that they miss the point. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of the Antichrist. It's not the revelation of Mystery Babylon. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the risen Lord who is the first and the last. This is the conquering king. 
And so, it is the apocalypse, which means the revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ. And it's the revealing of the resurrected Christ. So, we spoke to these things, and then we began to look at this revelation of Christ that begins in verse number 12 more specifically. And so the last time we dealt with this, we basically talked about the seven golden lampstands. And if you remember, these represent the seven churches, right? The seven churches that are being written to um, here in Asia, these seven churches are represented here as seven lampstands. And so we spoke about some of the symbology in relation to the churches, and we left off with that um, analogy to the churches. And now what I want us to do this week is to focus upon the Son of Man. Now, this is the area, until we get to chapter 2, where uh, it can maybe seem a little slow, and in the American, the modern American sense, we could say a little boring because there are some details that we're basically just listing here so that we can have an understanding of this revelation before we get to which is really what our purpose is in dealing with this is get to the seven messages to these seven churches and to see what we can apply to us today um, from those seven messages but notice here, first of all, we have the Son of Man. The Son of Man is in the midst of what? The seven lampstands, right? And so the imagery of Christ in the midst of the seven lampstands is very significant. It is, you might say, profound. Um, it's significant. There's a, there's a high importance here in understanding Christ here who is in the midst of the seven lampstands, which represents the seven churches of Asia. And, of course, the aspect of this can be traced back to the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says the prophet, the, the prophet Daniel envisions the Messiah there in that passage, referring to him as the Son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, symbolizing his divine authority and glory. So this title, Son of Man, which we find also in the Gospels, right? Jesus referring to himself many times as the Son of Man. It emphasizes both Christ's humanity and his divine authority. Now, in Revelation chapter 1, we witness the fulfillment of this prophetic vision... Christ, the Son of Man, stands in the midst of these seven golden lampstands. These lampstands representing the seven churches. And it conveys an idea of illumination, of purity, and the church's role as a light bearer of the world. With the light of the world, who is Christ, there in the midst of the lampstand. Um, of course, it's not seven, but it's kind of like the Advent candle. You have the four 
uh, candles representing the four Sundays prior to Christmas. And then you have the Christmas candle in the middle, right? In the midst of the lamp stand. It's the Christ candle. And so, so the same way here with this lamp stand, um, Christ is in the mist. He is the light of the world, but Jesus also told his people, his disciples, his followers, his church, that they were the light of the world. Why? Because he is in the midst of them. And that's one of the things that we miss too, by the way, in relation to our understanding of church today. But I want to tell you and inform you, this is a side note, this is for free, this is one of those extra things that comes along, uh, like in Sunday school this morning, Um, this is extra, right? But um, in our worship services, when we come, you talk about uh, the reverence and the holiness of the worship in the Old Testament, how about this reverence and holiness that Christ is right here in the midst of us? He is present. He is spiritually present with us right now. He is spiritually present with us in the word. He's spiritually present with us in the sacrament, in the bread and the wine. He is spiritually present. So Christ here is in the midst of the churches. He is present. He is not a deist. He is the deity, but he's not a deist. So he is there in the midst of them. And so the significance of Christ being in the midst of the lampstands has several different aspects to it. First of all, it is that, the aspect of his presence. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you. Until the end of the world or the end of the age, depending upon your translation. But notice why he said that even though physically his body has ascended into heaven. By the way, there's two things to think about with that. A physical body. Okay, The spirit didn't ascend to heaven. His complete physical body ascended into heaven. All right. That's one thing for your consideration. And the other thing is, is that his spirit is present with us and always will be until the end of the world, until the end of the age, until he comes back physically, he is spiritually present. And so his positioning here in the midst of the lampstand signifies his active and intimate presence within his church and with his church. It's a reminder that he is not a distant or disinterested deity, but one who is actively involved in the daily lives, challenges, and triumphs of his people. So the first thing we understand is his presence. And then secondly, the inspection. The image suggests a careful inspection of the lampstands. Christ, as the Son of Man, walks among the churches, scrutinizing their spiritual condition, because that's the messages that's going to come out of this, right? Christ is in the midst of the seven golden, uh, in, this, in the seven golden lampstands. He is in the midst of them. He is present with them, 
And then in chapters 2 and 3, he is going to analyze them. He's going to scrutinize their spiritual condition. He's going to make judgment. And then he is also going to pronounce warnings and remedies. So in Revelation 2 and 3, we see his letters to these churches. Addressing their strengths and weaknesses and calling them to repentance or commending them for their faithfulness. And then third, authority. The son of man's presence in the midst of the lampstands signifies his authority over the church. Um, So symbolically speaking, it's like in the advent candle, which one stands higher? The Christ candle, right? Why? Because it's symbolic of his authority. The, The central aspect of Christ. And so... The Son of Man's presence in the midst of the lampstand signifies his authority over the church. He is the head, and the church, represented by the lampstands, is under his sovereign rule, which is why he can say the things that he says in chapters 2 and 3. So this underlies the importance of submitting to his lordship, and recognizing his ultimate authority in matters of doctrine, worship, and conduct. And that's really what we are calling Christians to um, all over the world, specifically here in this place and in this community. And to, um, we are calling for a renewal of the authority of Christ over his church and over his people. To recognize his ultimate authority in matters of doctrine, worship, and conduct. Not based upon our preferences, our ideas, and our um, commandments. Uh, Which reminds me of a funny statement that uh, Charles Spurgeon made one time. Who was called the Prince of Preachers. Um, He was a pastor in the mid to late 1800s in London. And uh, very famous, by the way. Um, but anyway, one time he said, God gave us Ten Commandments. He was talking, of course, because he was a Baptist, so he's talking to Baptists because Baptists have this problem, right? And so he was talking to Baptists, and he said, God gave us Ten Commandments. I don't need an eleventh. Um, so, you know, we're not talking about the commandments and doctrines of men. We're talking about the supreme ultimate authority of Christ in matters of doctrine, worship, and conduct. Not the additions of the Pharisees, but recognizing the sovereign rule and reign of Christ and submitting to him. And then fourth, comfort. So in times of trials and tribulations, because first century church had an abundance of them, didn't they? Think of all the persecution. Think of all the poverty. Think of all the physical, emotional, spiritual distress that they endured. We can't even think in those terms. There is no threat of us having worship here today. We are not worried about Nero and his henchmen conducting a raid on this church, hauling us down to the palace, putting us up on a pole, and setting us on fire. Okay? 
As a matter of fact, I'm not the prophet or the son of a prophet, but I prophesy here today that that is not going to happen to you before we leave. Okay? We are not under the threat of that. So we can't even think in those terms of what they were enduring, the trials and the tribulations that they were enduring there in the first century. But what we learn from this is that in trials and tribulations, even though our trials and tribulations may pale in comparison to theirs, and they do, right? Our trials and tribulations pale in comparison to the first century Christians. No matter how hard you have it right now, it is nothing compared to how hard they had it. Okay? so But we can learn something that even in the midst of our lesser trials and tribulations, just as in their greater trials and tribulations, that the knowledge that the Son of Man is in the midst of the church brings comfort. It should bring comfort to us as we think here this morning upon our condition, our sinful condition, our shortcomings, As we think upon that, isn't it comforting to know that the one who is calling us to this table to eat of this bread and this cup is the one who said, come unto me, all you who are laden and all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is the one. When you're invited to this table... Jesus Christ is the one inviting you. It's not me. I'm just a minister ministering in his name. It's Jesus Christ who says, come and dine. It's the the Lord who is saying, come. Come to me. He is in the midst of... And when he is in the midst, it brings comfort. You know why Christians don't have much comfort today? Because we don't believe he's in the midst. Or because we're not where he is. And so he's not some distant ruler. Not just. But he's a compassionate shepherd who cares for his flock. The church is his flock, and he is in the midst of her. Shepherding, caring, calling. And so, this echoes Jesus' promise to his church in Matthew twenty-eight twenty. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Man, if you as a first century Christian... You needed some comfort. In the midst of all the persecution, in the midst of all the affliction, they had the promise and the assurance that Christ was in the midst of them and that he would never leave them nor forsake them. As a matter of fact, Jesus even said that he has so much love and care for his church that even when... There's one lost out of the 90 and 9. He will go rescue that one lost sheep. 
So, in practical terms, this vision here that's given to John challenges believers to assess the presence of Christ in their individual lives and in the life of the church. So, are our actions, decisions, and worship reflective of his lordship? Are we attuned to his presence, seeking his guidance, and acknowledging his authority? Christ's position in the midst of the lampstands calls for a vibrant, obedient, and Christ-centered expression of the church, radiating his light into a darkened world. Not only does it bring comfort, but it ought to bring change. If Christ is in the midst of us, yes, that's a comforting thing, but that's also a fearful thing. That means that he is in the midst of us and the secrets that we think we are keeping are not kept. So he knows because he walks along with us. He is ever present in our lives. So not only is it a comforting thing, but it's also a fearful thing. It's a challenging thing. And so, as we think upon this, this morning, all I want us to think about is this. Is that Christ, the Son of Man, he is in the midst of the church. He is with us. So, why should we fear? Why should we doubt Why should we recoil back? Why should we flee? Christ is with us. Joshua discovered that the man who is going before them and fighting their enemies was the Lord, the captain of the host, right? Jesus Christ is with us. He is in the midst of the church. And we are told that this one who is in the midst of the church has all power and all authority granted unto him in heaven and on earth, and that he is actively putting all enemies under his feet. So why? Why are we fearful? Why are we running and hiding? Why are we not seeking and asking and knocking? Why are we not going forth with that confidence? And think about how this applies to everything in our lives. Coming in confidence to worship before the Lord. Because he is the one who has called us into this worship. He is the one who has accepted us into the beloved, the church. He has called us and he has accepted us. The message is coming from him. So when we 
pronounce things in our liturgy. When the word is being read, when the word is being proclaimed, whether it's in song or prayer, preaching or reading, it is Christ. One of the things that they used to do in the old days, and there's a lot of things they used to do in the old days that we should do, um, but we don't because we're so much more enlightened, and you can see how much our enlightenment has helped the world. We've done a great job, by the way. Um, you know, thank God for the enlightenment. Um, but um, in the old days, what they used to do, would they, would, they would make the quote-unquote clergy. They would have pastors. It didn't matter what denomination you were. You can go look, search it out. They'd be in black. Most of the time, black robes, right? Some form of that. Or as time developed on, black suits. But they would do that, and then they would be uh, usually really high in a podium or on the platform. And, and the reason why they would do that is they would try to take away the man as much as possible. That's not the way evangelicalism works today, right? It's all about the man. His flashy suits and his charisma and uh, uh, light shows and all this crazy stuff going on. It's, it's, it's about the man and the entertainment. But what they were trying to do was to reduce the man so that everyone would know is that which was being proclaimed and that which was being done in worship was Jesus. This is the word of the Lord, isn't it? This is the word of the Lord, who, and the word is who? Christ. Christ is in the midst of us. May we grab on to that truth and understanding so that we can ourselves know that he is present and that he is with us and he is watching and that he has all authority and therefore we can receive comfort knowing that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, we thank you for your promises that are depicted here in this vision, here in Revelation chapter 1. May you help us to truly believe, to believe that you are here. That I'm not standing here right now talking to some figment of my imagination, but that we are actually in communication with you. And that we are receiving communication from you in the spiritual worship through the word and the sacrament. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to receive, first of all, comfort, knowing that you are not some distant God gone off on some journey but that you are active and present. 
But may it also challenge us to know that you are active and present. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's